It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. On Sunday, the U.S. Senate revealed the details of an immigration and national security package negotiated by a bipartisan group of senators. In addition to providing funding for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, the legislation would have made big changes to the asylum system, including allowing the president to shut down the border with Mexico and effectively pause asylum processing. Many Republicans in Congress turned against the bill. It failed in a vote in the Senate earlier today. But changes to the asylum system are still an open question. We're taking a look now at asylum law in the U.S., the proposed changes and legal options for the White House when it comes to border security. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think we should make the asylum process more or less restrictive? What do you think of the Senate's immigration package? What questions do you have about it? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Rick Sue is a professor at the University of North Carolina School of Law, where he specializes in immigration, asylum, and refugee law. Rick, welcome back to Central Time. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. A lot in this bill that now appears to be going nowhere, but it did a lot, it seems to me, uh, when it came to asylum laws or it tried to do it. As you looked at this proposed legislation, what struck you most about how it would impact the asylum process? Yeah, this has probably been most restrictive uh, asylum uh, reform that has been proposed uh, and certainly sort of exposed in this particular sense. Um, So the biggest component is it just makes asylum harder to get. Uh, On the one hand, it raises the standard uh, with regard to the initial screening of whether you even get into an asylum uh, adjudication. It also makes the whole process faster, right? So you're doing it the first screening at 90 days, and then it's another 90 days. And I guess the plan there is to be able to make a determination uh, within that first 180 days and up or down. Uh, And in this case, by raising the standard, it would also make it more likely uh, that a person would be rejected or not in a good position to affirmatively prove their case. Now, there are a lot of different uh, phrases out there related to immigration, uh, illegal and legal, refugee, asylum, uh, work visas, things like that. Explain what asylum is in in our immigration system and how big a role it plays. Yeah, and that's a great question because I think a lot of discussion right now is still talking about this as if we're still talking about that legal immigration issues, let's say back in the 1980s or even the early 2000s. And that's not entirely the case, right? So it's not issues of individuals, let's say, sneaking into the border and just trying to meld and melt into the American society. Uh, Most of the issues that we're dealing with now is people coming and formally applying for asylum. So they're not legally admitted into the country in the sense that we have to determine whether they qualify for asylum, but they are in a legal process. And essentially what asylum is about is that we have an obligation under our law and international uh, sort of agreements uh, to not send people back to a situation in which they're at fear for their life. We call it a well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, And essentially that's a determination that we're making is whether or not uh, we would have in some sense, blood on our hands uh, if we were responsible for sending them back to a dangerous situation. The definition of that kind of persecution, though, Rick, seems like it uh, varies depending on who you're talking to and maybe uh, who's in the White House and who the attorney general is. Uh, Religious persecution, okay, political persecution might apply, uh, but people coming from high crime environments uh, like uh, Central America right now, that seems to be something we argue about, whether or not that makes someone eligible for asylum. 
Yeah, and that really has sort of triggered two different components, right? So one is you have to put into a certain category, religion, political opinion, or as one of them is membership in a particular social group. Uh, and that's been opening up a lot of debate, whether if you're being targeted by, let's say, gang members because they feel that you are of a particular religion or you live in a particular community or something like that, does that fall into it? The other is that we're dealing with a lot of, let's say, ish situations in which uh, the persecution isn't, let's say, government officials. Uh, it's, let's say, people that the government is unable to or unwilling to stop from persecuting you. Uh, that is actually within the law, but there are a lot of people that feel like uh, that standard shouldn't be used. And if it isn't the government, if you're just fearing for the life from someone, even the government can't protect you from, like a warlord uh, or a gang-controlled territory or something like that, that, that's not something asylum should give you protection from. A key part of the story, Rick, that is driving a lot of this political debate, uh, it, a lot more people are seeking asylum in the last few years. This, the numbers, I, I think, are up and substantially up over previous years. Is that right? That is correct. What is driving that? Yeah. So <laughs> I guess there's the political story, and then there's probably you know looking behind that political story. Uh, so the political story is essentially this is you know Biden's immigration policies, and that's somehow driving. Uh, and to some extent, we have uh, taken away, let's say, Title Forty Two, right? That was the uh, block on asylum that we had done before, but that was based on COVID. Uh, that's not actually part of the immigration code. So the idea was that. Uh, we've made asylum easier to apply for. We are no longer expelling people for COVID restrictions, and that has made the numbers go up. But there's also something really interesting, which is it's not that just the numbers gone up, but the places where people are coming from have also changed. So I'd say about five, 10 years ago, we were mostly talking about Mexico and Central America, right? El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras. Now, actually, that, that, that population has gone down, and we're seeing flows much more from South America and also the Caribbean. So Haiti, Venezuela, other sort of situations, uh, and maybe more uh, South America as well, maybe starting to see a little Brazil, a little Argentina coming in. So that suggests that there's also push factors involved, which, is, uh, which we don't focus on usually, but there's a lot of instability in a lot of countries right now, Venezuela being one of them and Colombia being another. Uh, so it seems like a lot of this is also driven by what's happening uh, really in the Americas, uh, which, interesting enough, besides the fact that they're in our backyard, is something that we don't pay attention to. But it does impact, essentially, immigration and asylum seeking uh, quite substantially. Talking to Rick Sue from the School of Law at the University of North Carolina, looking at immigration and asylum laws in the U.S. We had this uh, Senate deal reached by a couple of negotiators from different parties and that deal rejected by the Senate as a whole. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Rick, one of the provisions in this uh, legislation, again, uh, not a passing, at least not yet, uh, is that, okay, if we uh, have a certain number of people apprehended at the border in a given day or on average over the course of the week, it gives the president the authority to uh, shut down the border. What what would that look like? What would shutting down the border in this circumstance yeah. mean? That's probably one of the most substantial components of this bill. So one thing to know, if it's over 4,000 a day, averaged over seven days, the president has a discretion to, quote unquote, shut down the border. But the bill also says if it's over 5,000 a day average, or if there's over 8,500 in any given day, the president doesn't even have discretion. Congress requires them to shut down the border. So it's important to know in this case, it's not just empowering uh, Biden. 
uh, or the president in this particular case, it would force the president to do something whether he wants to or not uh, with regard to the shutdown. Uh, the shutdown would then, once it triggers, be at least 90 days, three months shut down, uh, though no more than 270 days in the first year. Now, what do we mean by shutdown? I, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people say the shutdown. Uh, we're not really shutting down the border. If you have a passport, you have a visa, uh, all the processing is the same. Essentially, what we're shutting down is your ability to come to the country and say, you can't send me back because I'm seeking asylum. It's really just essentially an expulsion just for asylum proceedings. Um, this is quite interesting because this provision is essentially what was part of the big debate during the Trump administration. Title 42, which we use COVID restrictions to shut down the border for asylum applications. The return to Mexico policy, uh, you might have heard of that. That was also another process in which we essentially said we will not process certain asylum claims, stay in Mexico uh, 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 while that's going on. Uh, this really is very close, like a legal congressional authorization to do that. In fact, a mandate to do that. Uh, so the fact that this also got not a lot of support uh, was sort of surprising in that sense, because in some ways this whole bill, uh, usually we have an immigration compromise. This whole bill doesn't feel like that much of a compromise. Uh, except for the fact that it's compromised for, of course, Ukrainian and uh, uh, Israeli funding. We saw kind of a turnabout from especially House Republican leadership on this. They were making the case uh, a while back that we needed to change our laws, uh, border security laws, and they were, wanted to attach that as a condition, as you mentioned, of Ukraine and other funding. Now we have this uh, suggestion from the Senate. It's falling short, and House leadership, including Speaker Mike Johnson, said, you know what, we don't need a law. The president already has the authority to do border shutdowns. And some people have pointed toward uh, the Trump policy targeting mostly Muslim nations. Ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court backed him, I think, by a five to four vote in that circumstance. Does that give a President Biden or a future president the authority to do these kind of asylum shutdowns under the law as it is? Yeah. So let's not forget that even when uh, presidents in the past, and not just Trump, even when Obama was doing it before, exercising executive power, all those were challenged by litigation. Uh, in fact, uh, even when Biden was trying to unwind many things that Trump did, that was all challenged by litigation. And the foundation of those litigations is you do not have the power to do these things. Let's wait for Congress to say that you have the power to do these things. So I do think it's kind of interesting that, you know, we are in a position for Congress to, which we've been waiting for, to do something about and say what they want the immigration policy to be or what they want the president to do, and they back away from it and say that you already have the power to do so. We don't know we have the power to do so. We've been sort of on the margins, uh, sort of stretching in different ways. Um, it's also interesting that on a lot of other issues, right, both the courts, uh, but also uh, sort of in the political sphere have been challenging president's ability to do all sorts of things. Uh, certainly the Supreme Court's pulling back on uh, if presidential power without explicit delegation. So again, this should be the gold standard of how we should do it. At the end of the day, immigration policy is congressional policy. Uh, the fact that Congress has not done anything in about, I don't know, a decade and a half, two decades, uh, I don't think is an excuse for not doing something going forward. Rick Sue is with us, professor of law at the University of North Carolina, talking about asylum law after the failure of a border security bill in the U.S. Senate earlier today.
You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you or someone you know immigrated to the U.S. in recent years? Have you or a family member uh, applied for asylum at some point? What was that experience like? And looking at this uh, immigration package, what, if anything, do you want to see Congress and or the president do when it comes to the U.S.-Mexico border? Join in now at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our conversation with Rick Sue, professor of law at the University of North Carolina, looking at a bipartisan immigration package introduced in the U.S. Senate and how it would affect those seeking asylum in the U.S. The Senate, uh, at least for now, has rejected that package. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. President Biden had supported uh, the idea of passing this law. Here he is speaking last month at the First in the Nation dinner at Columbia, in Columbia, South Carolina. And also give me as president the emergency authority to shut down the border until it could get back under control. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. A bipartisan bill would be good for America and help fix our broken immigration system and allow speedy access for those who deserve to be here. And Congress needs to get it done. Rick, we talked about the uh, the border shutdown, a part of that earlier. Uh, also, the bill was aimed at uh, speeding up, as, as the president mentioned there, speedy access for those who deserve to be here. Uh, I believe it included uh, some efforts to uh, increase staffing, to help process asylum claims, things like that. How important would that be? Yeah, that's actually the most important component of it, not only for the quote-unquote individuals who may deserve asylum, uh, but really, even among conservatives, that was seen as essentially the impetus for people who may not actually qualify for asylum to come seek for asylum. Right now, the asylum process is backlogged a year, two years, sometimes even more than that. So as a result, what ends up, the feeling is that a lot of people are coming here to apply for asylum, knowing that it would take at least that amount of time, let's say two years, for them to be in the United States before they'll even be heard on the initial sort of hearing. So I believe the sort of speeding it up on the one hand is on the one hand, being able to reward asylum to those who really deserve it as quickly as possible. They can get their life settled and sort of move on, uh, but also to make really quick determinations on those who would be rejected for asylum and hopefully incentivize people not to come for asylum if they don't have a legitimate claim. Um, at the end of the day, asylum grants are about 10%. So I think the plan is to get the funding to speed up the process so we can essentially carve out the 10% quicker and be able to sort of deny the 90% and then remove them uh, without that incentive to stay in the United States and come seek asylum. Let's bring on a caller. John is with us in Eau Claire. John, hi. Hello. I don't have a question because I've been studying this issue for 40 years, but I do have an opinion. There is no reason for the Senate to throw Joe Biden a lifeline to save his failing candidacy for re-election. That's all this is about. You cannot trust Joe Biden and Mayorkas to implement whatever minor restrictions might be in this legislation. I would commend Senator Johnson. I assume he opposes this. I would condemn Senator Baldwin, who I assume supports it. This country is going to hell. I work in a warehouse. 
almost everybody I work with is living paycheck to paycheck. Their wages are being held down by an unending stream of immigrants willing to work for little in the way of wages, many of them in cash. John, thanks for the call. Rick, a couple things there. First of all, uh, a similar argument to an Obama-era effort to uh, reform the immigration system. Republicans ultimately rejected it because uh, they, they didn't trust Obama to implement it, they said at the time. John, making a similar argument here. Yeah, I do think that this sort of trust of institutions, trust of different political parties, and certainly the political dynamic is playing a huge role with regard to how we see these things. Uh, I will say what's interesting about this bill is in all the other previous quote-unquote immigration compromises, you might say that there was a balance, right? So Democrats got something, right? Usually uh, some sort of relaxation of some process, more legal immigration. Uh, and what they've been looking for in a lot of those bills for a long time is legalization for DACA members. Um, what's interesting about this one is one might say in this case, uh, there is no balance on the other side, right? Uh, other than, I guess, the idea that it's a lifeline to Joe Biden, it's not clear that there's any balance, right? DACA's not on here. Dreamers, you know, the Dreamer situation's not on here. Legalization, amnesty, all those, right? Not on here. Uh, 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 it's all essentially uh, making it harder to grant asylum uh, and everything in that process. But I do think the caller also mentioned something, and I think that's driving a lot of it. You know, it's it's interesting, right? Like I what I I, I came to the United States uh, in the 80s. I grew up during the 90s. It feels like every decade we have an immigration crisis. The border is never under control. The whole thing has been essentially a mess. And I feel like what's interesting in the last 20 years is it seems like the crisis is actually more advantageous than actually doing anything about it. Uh, that may be just the changing sense of politics. But I do think that is also, as the caller mentioned, the sign of sense that we just don't trust anyone, right, with regard to the implementation. The irony is Congress doesn't trust anyone. They don't have to grant discretion. Congress can just mandate specific actions. Uh, so it's not clear that we need to trust Biden to do anything if Congress is willing to act. It's just not clear if anyone's really actually engaged in thinking about what we want to do or what we should do, even if we want to achieve, I think in this case, what the caller was talking about, which was to limit immigration uh, and maybe uh, be concerned about American wages. Uh, that's also not part of the conversation right now either, I think, unfortunately. John, thanks for the call. Rita is with us in Conover. Rita, hi. Hi. Thank you very much. Yeah, what did you want to bring up, Rita? Um, well, I really have a, I feel like I don't know that much about um, immigration and asylum, but um, some people I've talked to think that the 5,000 limit a day would allow way too many people uh, into the country. And I'm getting the understanding that even if people apply, you're saying only 10% apply. But so my question is, why is that number set at 5,000, and how is that reasonable? And kind of what is the difference between the Democrats' view of this and the Republicans as far as how many people should we be allowing into our country as a reasonable immigration number? Rita, thanks yeah. for the call. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's perfect. And, and the one thing important about the 5,000 number, the 5,000 number isn't the people that we will allow in. It's the number in which once it triggers, we shut down the border completely. We have right now, there is no cap, right? It's unlimited in terms of people coming to apply for asylum. So if we're concerned about the 5,000 number being too much, it certainly is less than the uncapped number right now, right? Uh, which 
even Joe Biden, uh, President Biden is realizing we don't have the funding or the resources to get to process essentially all these individuals. Um, even if the, we do allow, right? So it's not allowing 5,000. It's just once you go over 5,000, we just shut down the border. Uh, but even with regard to that number, uh, you know, the question here is whether or not if we process these things faster with regard to asylum claims, that less people will come seek it. Uh, I do believe, uh, you know, a lot of the incentive was the fact that the process just takes so long. So maybe speeding it up will help. But really, to come to your question about how many people should we take, the thing is, we have that discussion with regard to lots of different grounds for immigration, family based and employment. And historically, we haven't really had that conversation for asylum because we imagine that asylum was special, right? It's humanitarian. It's not about, it's about individuals fleeing. Um, it'd be weird to set a number. We, we forget the reason we're here was actually because of Nazi Germany, right? We rejected so many Jewish individuals, including a whole boatload in St. Louis when they came because they didn't fit our numbers. So it's kind of weird to say that we set a number, at least on asylum, the original thinking, when in some ways you were supposed to get waves when there is a crisis. Um, whether there's a crisis or not, like the sort of height of the Holocaust is another debate, but it's weird to be thinking about numbers in the past with regard to asylum, though clearly I think now that asylum is in the target, it is an area in which we are talking about numbers. And that's essentially, I guess, what we think about the whole process of, of humanita humanitarian protection. Rick, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. That's Rick Sue, professor of law at the University of North Carolina. He talked to us today about asylum laws and border security after a bipartisan plan failed in the U.S. Senate earlier today. Still up in the air whether Congress will tackle some kind of border security bill between now and, say, Election Day coming up later this year. Remember, you could follow these conversations all the time, anytime online at WPR.org and share them with others. If you think you heard something interesting that someone else would be interested in, also follow reporting from the Wisconsin Public Radio News Department. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. Leaders of some of the biggest social media companies sat before a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing last week that included representatives of TikTok, Discord, X, formerly Twitter, Meta, and Snap. Senators questioned and in some cases chastised the technology company officials about their efforts to protect young users from things like harassment, sexual exploitation, and other dangerous or manipulative content. In one exchange, Meta's Mark Zuckerberg faced a grilling from Republican Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri about Facebook and Instagram's efforts. So you and didn't take any action. You didn't take any true, action. Senator. You didn't fire anybody. You haven't that's compensated a single not, victim. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? I've, Would I'm, you like to do so now? Well, they're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? 
Zuckerberg then stood up, turned around, and addressed families in the gallery, saying, quote, I'm sorry for everything you have all been through. This is why we invest so much and are going to continue doing industry-leading efforts to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. The business leaders are also asked whether they supported a bipartisan bill co-sponsored by Senators Marsha Blackburn, a Tennessee Republican, and Richard Blumenthal, Connecticut Democrat, who say the law would direct social media companies to do more to protect kids. The bill is called the Kids Online Safety Act. We're going to talk about how it might or might not achieve some of those goals. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think social media platforms, the way they handle kids' safety, has gotten any better over the years? Do you have questions about security features already available on social media platforms? Do you think there ought to be a law when it comes to kids and social media? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Steve Knoll is digital and social media marketing professor at Madison College. Steve, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me, Rob. We've seen various reports lately, Steve, uh, trying to track uh, the impact of social media on kids, uh, kids being exploited online, things like that. How big a problem do you perceive this uh, to be right now? Well, it certainly is a big problem. It's been a big problem for a long time, and I see that it's going to continue to be a big problem. And, you know, it's unfortunate because, you know, we're talking about big companies, we're talking about big money. We're talking about personal freedom, freedom of speech, a lot of big ideas, regulation of industries. You know, these are some pretty provocative and strong um, subjects for people to really, you know, think about. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of political grandstanding with this event. You know, people like the the clip that you played earlier, you know, it's unfortunate. A lot of the, you know, the ideas of like regulating companies goes completely contrary to, um, you know, the Republicans who are up there trying to get on TV by trying to throw Mark Zuckerberg underneath the bus, you know. And at the same point, you know, Zuckerberg himself is the face of the company, and especially Instagram, and he really hasn't done a lot publicly, and, and his apology was really pretty empty. So, you know, at the end of the day, we, we see a lot of people trying to get on TV, trying to get on the media to show off how cool they are. And at the end of the day, they're not doing anything, and the kids are going to keep suffering. Now, we've got this Kids Online Online Safety Act proposed. It gives authority uh, to a federal agency and, I think, at least in one recent version, to state attorneys general to uh, require changes to monitor social media companies. Uh, I've seen widely varying opinions on these proposals, to say the least, Steve. What do you see as the key elements? What do you think of it? Well, uh, you know, and again, a lot of this is politics. A lot of this is it's a lot of hot air to, you know, get their names out there because they're up for reelection. But I also look at this and go, okay, if we pass this law in theory, which I don't think they could ever agree to actually pass it, how would you enforce this? You know, what would prevent a 16-year-old from logging into a social network and saying they're, they're 18? You know, right now that happens, we could say, well, we're going to put parental controls on social media accounts, so the parents need to verify it. Right now, you know, parents, 
They have parental controls on television sets so kids can't watch R-rated movies. Parents don't know how to use these or they don't care. So unless we have a really big shift in our culture um, about enforcing this stuff, not from the legal regulatory issue, but from the, you know, hey, parents need to be more responsive. We're not going to see this change. Kids are going to find a way to get around it. And people are going to continue to, you know, it's, it's like, you know, getting a fake ID so you can go into a bar when you're, when you're 20. That's been going on for decades. This is nothing new. It's never going to change. And if we say you have to be 18 to be on Instagram, someone will just get a fake ID so they can be on Instagram. Yeah, there's been some talk, Steve, of uh, requiring proof of identity uh, for that younger uh, teen user if there's this age restriction in place. Uh, that's also raised concerns over people's ability to use the Internet anonymously if that kid has to be identified by uh, name uh, and possibly other types of identifying information. Do you see any kind of like uh, workable identity and age authentication system? <laughs> wow, no. I do not. Um, you know, p- part of that is that opens up a whole can of worms. I mean, you are literally saying we're going to put people on government controlled lists in order to get onto social media. Tell me how, you know, people in, in politics can get behind that type of concept of putting people on government mandated lists. You know, it might pass, but everyone will find ways to to, to get around that. And, and really, at the end of the day, you're going to marginalize the people that really benefit from social media. You know, there's a lot of problems with social media, but there's a lot of advantages as well. And, and that's the stuff that people don't really talk about. You know, people who live in marginalized um, communities facing a lot of discrimination, facing a lot of harassment – they can go onto social media and find, you know, a, you know, friends and, and chosen family and, and people to support them that they may not get at home, at school, in the town they live on, you know, and, and we, we don't want to give that up. We don't want to say, well, we're going to take away all that stuff for this other thing. So this is very much a, a, a dual edged sword. If we help one way, we're hurting another way. And just the logistics of it, the fact that the Internet is is so unregulated and that's by design, you know, so that way the Internet is for everybody just runs contrary to, you know, 20, 25 years of of this online social media environment. Talking to Steve Knoll from Madison College, professor there of digital and social media marketing, looking at the big social media platforms, how kids interact with them for better or worse. Big hearing in Congress uh, not too long ago, a push to have a, a new bill to regulate social media companies when it comes to kids. You could join in at 800 642 one two three four that's eight hundred six four two one two three four steve i think one concern isn't uh, so much that okay if a kid goes looking for stuff on social media they're going to find it uh but as uh, in terms of what social media platforms serve up to kids and the algorithms that point them toward different things so that it might point kids toward uh things that might encourage uh 
uh, anorexia or things like that, uh, harassment, mm-hmm. like the algorithms of social media companies, do you think there are things that platforms can do so that they're not pushing bad stuff to kids? Yeah. See, now, now that's something that I think is actually doable. You know, it, it is possible for these social media companies to definitely pull back on some of the algorithms. And they have, I mean, and th- there has been some evidence. Snapchat, for example, is, is, a, is a social media company that heavily appeals to the, the, the teen crowd. And they're actually behind some of this legislation. They're, they're endorsing it. To, to try to, you know, keep ever the, all this stuff, you know, of, you know, above the board and, and, and healthy and good for people. So I think, yes, I think social media companies, you know, especially Instagram, especially TikTok, can really do more internally to do that. But here, again, lies a big problem is there's a lot of money involved in this. And you know, the, the teen market is incredibly lucrative. You know, when we're talking about products that appeal to 15, 16, 17-year-olds, you know, you think of things like like clothing, movies, cell phones, you know, all these companies want to advertise to that demographic. And in today's world, social media platforms are by far the best way to reach them. So... It, it's hard to say this, you know, the, the tech companies could choose to do this, but then their shareholders are going to rebel and say, well, we're going to lose millions, if not billions of dollars of revenue for doing this. And, and at the end of the day, as we know, it, it's money is what runs the world. And if the, these tech companies, you know, are they willing to give up millions and billions of dollars or are there other ways to, to do this responsibly. Therein lies the big question. I think they can go further, but at the same point too, I totally understand why they would be hesitant to do that. Well, is that a case where the fear of new regulation, even if it doesn't ultimately pass uh, Congress, the fear of new regulation might motivate country, uh, companies to uh, make that compromise? Well, possibly, you know, but, but unfortunately, you look at things like... Um, you know, the movie rating system, you know, G, P, G, R, the television rating system, the video game rating system. These are all, you know, voluntarily, voluntarily internal industry regulations that were created in, as response to the government saying, hey, maybe we should regulate your industry. The problem, though, of course, is tell me what 16 year old can't get into a movie theater that's for an R rated movie even though we've got this system in place that's not enforced. So even if social media companies come up with a, a rating system, how does it get enforced? There's, there's probably no what they call teeth behind it to prevent it from you know, letting people easily get around it. We're talking about a bill in the U.S. Senate that sponsors say would better protect kids from threats on social media. Critics say it opens the door, among other things, to censorship. Steve Knoll is our guest, a digital and social media marketing professor at Madison College. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions for our guest? If you are a parent or a young person yourself, love to hear your perspectives. How do you handle social media usage in your family? Have you encountered stuff or your kid has encountered stuff that you wish they hadn't? Join in at 800-642-1234. 
That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with Steve Knoll, digital and social media marketing professor at Madison College. We're talking about how social media companies do and don't protect young people online and how a bill in Congress aims to help the situation. A lot of arguments about whether it would. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you want to see changes in federal regulation when it comes to social media, especially when it comes to kids? Do you have an experience to share from your own family? Join in at 800-642-1234. Let's bring in a caller. Michael is with us in Milwaukee. Hey, Michael. Hi there. Good afternoon. Hi. What do you want to bring up? Yeah, just uh, wanted to bring up that uh, I feel that one of the areas, probably the most uh, important area to do some work with this is uh, dealing with YouTube. Um, primarily, I've seen the majority of things that you wouldn't want kids to have exposure to come through YouTube, either through shorts or, you know, just basically, you know, there are restrictions, but there's just not enough enforcement and they put it in kids' cartoons on there. You know, I mean, it's just uh, a free-for-all, I guess. Michael, thanks a lot for the call and for bringing up YouTube, uh, Steve, which I often forget when it comes to the social media conversation. It's one of the biggies. I don't know if Google, the owners of YouTube, are actually at that hearing. Uh, your thoughts on YouTube and what ends up getting served up to kids? Oh, I would completely agree with that. I mean, you know, YouTube is one of the the biggest culprits in in spreading malicious information false information untruths you know in in the social media you know universe and and the fact that it, it is so easy you know google really is the best when it comes to developing algorithms you know when we talk about these conversations facebook is always the company that gets the brunt of the accusations but really, Google is the one that really has this down to a science. And, you know, when they bought YouTube, that was brilliant because watching videos and listening to music is, is so, so much of a tell of people's personalities and, and habits. And the ability to mine that stuff and then serve them appropriate content really is quite genius and clever. However, yes, it is very, very easy to manipulate that. And even though Google's got some pretty decent parental controls on it, it's also fairly easy to get around that stuff. You know, they don't really require a lot of verification. You know, they, they push you to YouTube Premium, you know, their paid service if you want to get rid of the ads. But that doesn't necessarily get rid of the suggested content. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, they're saying, hey, parents, if you're worried about your kids, pay to subscribe to YouTube. Yeah, it gets true to the ads, but you're still getting that that curated content. Thanks for the call, Michael. Tina is with us now in West Salem. Tina, hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm I'm old. I'm 62. And our oldest child is 42. Our youngest is eight. And I can tell you, if you think you are ever going to make a law or a regulation that is going to keep a kid from viewing, buying, playing, seeing any content, you're kidding yourself or you've never met a kid. 
Mm-hmm. I gotta ask, Tina, you've raised kids in the pre-internet generation and now in the internet generation. How what was your learning curve like for especially for the youngest? What how did you tackle this stuff? It's a wild, wild west. We all watched the stuff, we bought it, we looked at it. Um I can remember being 17 years old back east, uh, going into bars. Still was always 21, never had a problem. You're not, we would watch it, we would laugh about it, we would talk about it, we would talk about what's BS, what's not BS. But if you think you're going to keep anybody from seeing it, it's just you, you've never met a teenager or a teenager. And if you do put really good controls on Snapchat, Snapchat or whatever the newest singer singer is, um, it'll suddenly become the uncool thing and the teens will leave it in droves. <laughs> Tina, thanks for the call. Steve, I, I feel like I heard you nodding along with Tina on a lot of that. Oh, totally. And Tina, by the way, I, I think you're a pretty cool mom. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I would agree with that. I mean, that, the reality is, is kids will be kids. You know, if we go back decades ago, you know, I remember, you know, being in elementary school and, and other boys bringing in magazines that they got out of their dad's drawer um, you know, it, it's no different. It's going to happen. And I think, you know, the, the fact that, that she's so open and just communicating with her kids and saying, hey, we know this stuff is out there, but let's have a conversation about what this is, how it affects you. And, and instead of trying to hide it, you know, try to get kids to like understand it and understand it with them. A lot of parents really take this. I've got a good kid. I'm going to put my head in the sand. My kid will never do that. I can tell you as a teacher that the the kids who are raised that way are the worst ones who are out there doing it and they're doing it in irresponsible ways. So by protecting your kids, by shielding them from this reality, you are hurting them in the long run. And, you know, that's something that a lot of parents don't like to hear. And it's it's unfortunate that that more parents aren't just, you know, understanding that, hey, this stuff is out there and, you know, educating kids. You know, it it's like when growing up here in Wisconsin, you know, there was always alcohol in our house. And but there was never like this big you shouldn't drink this. You know, at Christmas time, you know, my dad was offering me a beer at age 14. OK, should he have done that? Maybe, maybe not. But it never gave me this like, oh, it's forbidden. So therefore, when he's not looking, I'm going to seek it out and have a whole bunch of them. You know, it was a once a year thing. And I think that that lessons like that should be applied to subjects like this, because, you know, we're not going to be able to regulate our way around this. And I think we really need a, a cultural shift if we really want to embrace this problem. Thanks again for that call, Tina. Now, Steve, uh, you mentioned uh, you're, you're teaching people a generation that uh, grew up with social media all around them. What kind of things are they asking you about, talking to you about when we have you know a Senate hearing like the one we kicked this off with? Well, this actually was brought up in class last week. Uh, a student had actually read about this and, and wanted to talk about it in class. So, so students are familiar with it. They know this stuff is out there. And when I bring up things like, um, you know, when you take a selfie with your cell phone, your cell phone edits the photo to make you look better. And then, you know, it's it, they, all cell phones. It's not just one brand. They use AI programs to, you know, smooth out your face and all that stuff. And, and 
students know this, you know, the, the 18 year olds, the 19 year olds, the 20 year olds in my class, when I tell them this, they kind of look at me and go, yeah, everybody knows that. <laughs> but, but you know, the, the 25, the 30 year olds, they're like, what, this is a thing. So it, it, it seems like, you know, younger people are a lot smarter and more worldly than they're given credit for. And I think if just more people would talk to them and, you know, start this conversation as, at a younger age, you know, start this conversation, you know, te- a lot of these social media companies, you know, their, their youngest age is 13. If you want to be on Instagram, 13 is the youngest, you know, it's, that's really when these conversations should start be having, you know, and, and the reality is, is what's going to prevent a 10 year old from creating a Snapchat account and then just lying and saying they're 13. Steve, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Oh, thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. That's Steve Knoll, digital and social media marketing professor at Madison College. We talked to him about a legislative proposal in Congress that would require social media companies to do more to protect young people on the Internet. Some of the free speech and other concerns that critics of that bill have raised as well. Still time for you to share your thoughts, maybe the experiences you've had in your family. You can email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, our heat pumps going to be the heating systems of the future. Find out what the technology is and why it's been seen as a more eco-friendly option. That's coming up tomorrow morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Regular listeners know that I'm a big fan of board games, and I always like to see news about the ancient origins of the games we play. Here's a new one, new to me anyway, a board game in East Africa that's at least 5,000 years old. As reported in Smithsonian Magazine, an archaeologist working in Kenya was checking out a site in a wildlife conservancy when she saw carved into a rock ledge a series of holes, two rows of holes, or rows of holes, each deep enough to hold a bunch of rocks. Her theory, it's an early version of the game, Mancala, still played in countries around the world today. I've played the game. It's a thing where you take pieces out of one slot, kind of place them around the board, try to capture pieces. It looks simple. takes some serious thinking and planning to get it right. I usually lose. But it's cool to see this game carved into the rocks sometime five to 10,000 years ago, they say. And I feel a sense of kinship with fellow board gamers from a distant millennium. And I know they'd probably beat me at Mancala too. Ancient game news you can use. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, we'll talk to an organizer of a project trying to bring more civility to politics. It's called the Dignity Index. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with the story of a food tradition from a Caribbean island. Cooking can transport us to another place, another time. When we cook, we're able to keep our family's dishes and memories alive for generation after generation. That's the case for Anne-Marie Herman in Madison, who was raised on the island of St. Lucia. WPR's Elle Malik Anderson brings us her story about fish cakes. It's part of the Wisconsin Life series, Food Traditions. The smell of hot oil, jerk chicken, and freshly baked bread with coconut and chocolate chips fill Anne-Marie Herman's kitchen in Madison. She heats up the oil in a large, heavy cast iron pan over her stovetop. Her ingredients wait on the countertop, ready to be put to work. This is 
flower. This is the codfish. It has um, thyme, onion, garlic, and other spices. On the menu today, salted fish cakes. She fills the frying pan with as many batter fish cakes as she can at once. After they are all done, she takes them out of the pan and places them on top of a huge pile of more fish cakes. This dish has been a part of Herman's life for a long time. I was born in the Caribbean islands, St. Lucia. But um, when I was much younger, I used to cook for my older brothers. That's how I started cooking, real cooking. Herman grew up in the countryside with her mother and would go back and forth to the middle of the town to cook for her elder brothers who were taxi drivers. My brothers were taxi drivers who were in the middle of town driving tourists and stuff so they don't have time to do thing with anything with cooking. So I used to do the cooking for them. But what my trick was not using a lot of fat in my food. I didn't use to measure a lot of stuff when I was cooking. Herman started keeping track of her measurements for each dish when she decided to publish a cookbook of family favorite recipes with the Caribbean twist. You see inside of it? It has all the Caribbean islands in there. That's my idea of putting the Caribbean <laughs> foods together. In her cookbook, she shares recipes for beef patties, fried green plantains, aloha friendship bread. There's also jerk chicken and other dishes her family enjoys. Fish cakes is another thing I make often. You take codfish, you boil it because it has a lot of sodium in it. So you wash it first, then you put it in a little pot to boil. And then when um, you give it uh, a few minutes to cook, when it's softened, you wash it again. You put more cold water on it to take the salt. Then you shred it and you add spices to it. She said her fish cakes are always a hit among her friends in the Caribbean Association of Madison. Sometimes I even try to hide it, but they find it before the meal. And some people will come and say, where is the fritters? They call it fritters. They ask me, where are the fritters you brought? It's there, but when you look, it's gone. WPR producer El Malik Anderson brought us that story on Anne-Marie Herman's fish cakes. And this story is part of a project from Wisconsin Life called Food Traditions. It's a multimedia exploration of food, culture, and identity, and can be found at wisconsinlife.org slash foodtraditions. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with the Wisconsin Humanities Council. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Want to make sure you catch every Wisconsin Life story? Subscribe to our podcast feed and find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCollum. This is Central Time. Now, as American politics have become more polarized, our political language seems to be getting more contentious and less productive. 
A group out of Utah is looking to improve that with the hope that adding more civility to our political conversations can help us feel less divided. They created a scale called the Dignity Index that they use to evaluate speeches, debates, interviews, and social media posts on how divisive the language is. The higher the number, the more dignity the words give to everyone involved. The lower the number, the more it attacks the other side. This started in Utah. Now the Dignity Index is going nationwide in time for the 2024 election season. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Does it feel to you like our political speech is getting more divisive? And whether that's a politician talking, a campaign ad, or conversation in person with family, friends, on social media. Are there ways you think we can make things better? Do you have questions about how to measure how contentious, how contemptuous our political language is? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Tammy Pfeiffer is a co-creator of the Dignity Index. She's the Chief of Staff and Vice President of External Affairs for the Unite Initiative. Tammy, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And I love the way that you described and set up the Dignity Index. Perfect. Now, before we dig into the Dignity Index, I'm wondering what got you involved in looking around, seeing a problem with contentious political language and wanting to do something about it? So right before I came to Unite, I worked for seven years in the Utah governor's office. I was Governor Gary Herbert's education policy advisor. And before that, I had uh, I held elected office uh, eight years at the local level and four years at the state level on the State Board of Education. And as you well know, education has uh, been rife with growing uh, contempt and division over the last few years. And the last year I was in the governor's office was 2020. So enter COVID, uh, schools closing down, uh, mask mandates, eventually the, vac- the vaccination discussions. And I just saw what was happening and saw that it was affecting my own family personally, uh, my work, my family, and I thought there's got to be a better way than this. And I had connected with Tim Shriver, my colleague, who is the chair of Special Olympics, who also has spent uh, years teaching about social and emotional learning skills, uh, the skills that we teach students in school, such as being able to disagree without being disagreeable, uh, working with diverse uh, diverse viewpoints and be able to take someone else's perspective. We're teaching these skills in school. And I heard Tim say, you know, we should apply that to politics. And I thought I have just found my mission for the (laughs) remaining years of my career and uh, jumped in with both feet. And now I'm working with Tim and another colleague, Tom Rochert, who is a lead architect of the Dignity Index. And we developed the Dignity Index. All right. Now let's dig into the index itself. Uh, give us a sense of what kind of things you are measuring with the Dignity Index and how how you score it. Great. The index is designed to measure words that are spoken in moments of disagreement or conflict. We don't score people, although sometimes I accidentally phrase it in such a way as so-and-so got a three on, on this. We're, we We don't score people, but we score the language that people use. And we we look at the phrases and the words that are used to determine if they um, indicate contempt for the other party that you disagree with, or if they uh, indicate dignity and uh, holding that person in a in a higher 
level of, of consideration than we often do in politics. So the scale goes from one to four. Those are the levels of contempt. The bottom one being uh, violence, calling for violence and you know looking at other people as though they were not even human. And the very top of the scale, I call this the Desmond Tutu level, is everyone is born with inherent worth. And so we treat everyone with dignity and we reflect that in our words uh, with, with other people. And a key point here, Tammy, it seems is, you know, you're not saying nobody's saying we have to agree on things. We have to come to a consensus on everything. It's more a matter of how we disagree. Exactly. And thank you for underscoring that. A lot of the pushback we get will be from people that say, oh, you just want us to all get along, give up our values, give up our principles and be nice and agree. (laughs) Problem solving, good problem solving requires disagreement. Other points of view, people to come in and think differently than you do. We have to have that to have a strong democracy. So no, that is not what we're advocating. We are just saying there's a better way to disagree. There's a better way to solve problems. Um, And it's using these principles of dignity in our discussions and not contempt for the other side. Now, unpleasant political language has been around for as long as there's been politics, I guess. But it seems like the incentive structure these days, uh, driven in part, I think, by social media, really rewards uh, more inflammatory language, uh, more contempt from the other side. If you if you agree with somebody and they really uh, got a good one over on the other side, well, you're going to forward that. Maybe you'll make a little donation. How do you push back on that what seems to me an incentive structure to uh, behave on the low end of the dignity index? You are absolutely right. Arthur Brooks calls it the outrage industrial complex. And there's the algorithms, everything that's designed to elevate the hateful speech and the clicks that we get and the donations that do come pouring in. And at times it feels insurmountable. Uh, I often get discouraged when I think about it, but then I remember that there's something I can do. I don't click on that media. I stop subscribing to certain uh, podcasts or don't look at the websites. I choose to not reward that behavior with those financial incentives, or sometimes it's just people that maybe aren't making money from getting us to hate each other, although a lot of people are, but it's, it's people that want a sense of belonging or they um, have power by getting us to hate certain groups of people. So uh, it sounds small. It sounds like a small thing, but we're trying to start a movement where if we had a thousand people in a community and then 10,000 and a hundred thousand in a state all over the country who said, I'm done being part of this cycle. I'm done being part of the contempt cycle. I'm done supporting organizations and industries that are getting us to hate each other. I'm done. So I'm unsubscribing. I'm not donating. (laughs) I am not clicking. Um, We could be a powerful force, but it's going to take some some work on our behalf. We're talking to Tammy Pfeiffer, co-creator of the Dignity Index, about her group's efforts to Restore more civility to our politics to get people to disagree more agreeably. You could join in at 800 642 If you have questions about the Dignity Index, its goals, how it actually works, and are you frustrated yourself uh, with what you hear from politicians and political advertising and politics on social media? Have you lost a friendship or had a family relationship go south because of contemptuous political language. Do you want to hold your own side accountable for undignified and contemptuous language? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234.
888-212-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Farad. We continue our talk with Tammy Pfeiffer, Chief of Staff, Vice President of External Affairs for the Unite Initiative, co-creator of the Dignity Index. That's a project that scores divisive language and politics in an effort to promote more civility in our political discussions. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions and your thoughts, maybe your solutions to our often unpleasant political language. That's 800-642-1234. Before we bring on a caller, I want to hear uh, an example of the index at work. Here's one you've rated. Uh, it's uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, until uh, recently Republican presidential contender, uh, a clip that uh, he posted on social media that scored on the lower half of the Dignity Index. The D.C. elites who facilitated this mess do not care about you, and they do not work for you. They work for themselves. They seek to accumulate power at your expense to pursue an agenda that is harmful to the American people. This got a three out of eight. That's on the lower end, but not the the worst case there. Can you talk about what goes into rating that statement as a three on the Dignity Index? Sure. So uh, when I train people, I have them first look at, in general, is this is this a contemptuous statement or is it full of dignity you know and people immediately say well that's definitely not a dignified statement so they say it's probably on the contempt side of the scale but three is when you're saying we're the good people and they're the bad people it's just as clear as that we're the good people they're the bad people it's us versus them these people are not working for you they're working against you we're the good people but they're the bad people and so that in a nutshell that's how that uh, obtained a score of a three Bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Liz is with us in Eau Claire. Liz, hi. Hi there. Well, I would like your speaker's opinion of just media in general, that it seems to me they spend too much time and attention and give more free airtime to people like this DeSantis comment that was not useful for anybody. I mean... (laughs) You can't just, I mean, I appreciate her not listening to podcasts and so on, but somehow I can't bring myself to cut off all news. And it seems like there aren't many that don't um, give too much airtime to what she would classify as undignified. Liz, thanks a lot for the call. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the media, Tammy, because, I mean, I'm in the media, and, yes, there's a temptation. (laughs) If there's a speech and there's one really fire-up-the-masses-type comment, we might pull that clip instead of the, you know, calm, measured policy observation. And, well, maybe I feel bad for having done that. What are your thoughts about how we in the media can tackle this? Yeah, look, it's 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 tough. It's around us everywhere. And it's easy to say I'm not going to listen to the news anymore. Uh, but it's difficult then to say, but I'm going to be uh, informed, engaged citizen, uh, which I've spent a lifetime, you know, getting my family and my children raised in that in that mindset that we want to be involved. A couple of a couple of thoughts come to mind, though, that we we are part of the system that rewards contempt, as you said earlier, Rob. We're, we're part of the system. How do we pull our way out of it? I remember uh, shortly after we finished our demonstration project on social media, this woman I don't know posted. She read about the Dignity Index, and she said, "I just contacted an organization whose mission I support, but I don't like the way they vilify." Uh, 
elected officials to raise money and I wrote them and I told them, I'm no longer going to donate to your cause until you change the way you speak about people. Again, it's it's a seems like a small thing, but if a lot of people started taking small uh, these small steps, we could grow into a formidable uh, coalition of people that said we're done with the contempt. It's hurting our families. I'm tired of hating my my in laws or you know the the people at work. I'm tired of feeling like I'm being made to hate these people. The, the other thought that um, that your caller uh, brought up for me is that. We are addicted in some way to contempt. There's the adrenaline rush, right? There's the buzz that we get of uh, uh, this, this self-righteous indignation of those people who are ruining the country. So there's an addictive quality, even the clickbait, you know, they call it bait for a reason. And it's 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 a big task for us to, to find ourselves up against these um, these systems that are powerful, they're backed with money. But I'm telling you, there are there there's power in individual voices, in communities, in families, in organizations, business organizations are coming to us. There's power when we link arms with each other and say, enough is enough, I'm not doing this anymore. And the most powerful thing we found so far uh, with the Dignity Index is when people turn the scale on themselves and say, not only you know, am I not going to subscribe to this podcast forever, but I'm going to stop calling people um, my enemies. I'm going to stop saying that those Republicans or those Democrats are ruining the country because that's not helping. It's not true and it's not helping. I cease. I'm going to cease being part of the problem and I'm going to start being part of the solution. Thanks for that call, Liz. I want to check out another uh, clip that you rated at the Dignity Index. This is Democratic Congressional Representative Dean Phillips uh, challenging uh, Joe Biden in the Democratic presidential primary. Here he is during an interview on CNN last month. I went to a Donald Trump rally a couple nights ago. Never been to one. Uh, I had an event across the street. I saw the line of people waiting in the cold for hours. And I thought, what the heck? You know, I'm going to be a leader who actually invites people, doesn't condemn them met probably 50 Trump people waiting in line, every single one of them thoughtful, hospitable, friendly, all of them so frustrated that they feel nobody's listening to them but Donald Trump. So this was scored a six out of eight in the Dignity Index. Can you interpret that for us? Yeah, so on the Dignity Index, uh, you can go to our website, dignityindex.us, and we have the card that we use, the kind of shorthand. And a six is we always talk to the other side. We're searching for these values and interests that we share. A real easy shorthand uh, that I teach in presentations is when you're speaking with dignity, you're saying, I see myself in you. When you're speaking with contempt, you're saying, I see myself above you. And look at those last two statements. One clearly says, I see myself above you. You're the bad people. I'm the good people. And this one is, hey, <laughs> you know, they're people just like me. They're, they're thoughtful, hospitable, friendly. I see myself in you. And so when you find yourself going one direction or the other, better than other people, or that you see yourself in other people, that's when you know you're swinging from contempt up to dignity. In just our last minute, Tammy, as you talk about the Dignity Index, are you getting a sense that there's a hunger for this kind of thing and a frustration with the contempt in our political language? 
People are starving for this. They are starving for a different way. You look at every poll uh, that has come out in the last six months to 16 months. People are people are tired of politics as usual. They're tired of how it makes them feel. They're tired of how it's dividing their family, their friendships. And th the big thing for me as a former elected official is we cannot solve problems. We can't pass a budget. We can't elect a speaker. We cannot solve the problems, the biggest problems facing our country because we have contempt and we need to move out of that mode so that we can make progress. Tammy, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Tammy Piper is the Chief of Staff and Vice President of External Affairs for the Unite Initiative. She was with us today to share the Dignity Index. That's a project she co-created to help restore civility and political discourse. Started in Utah, now going nationwide in this presidential election year, a way to evaluate a political language uh, from contempt to dignity. We'll get a link to that up at WPR.org slash Central Time. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, athletes at one U.S. college are employees and able to unionize according to a new court ruling. That's just one school, but it could have big impacts on college sports nationwide. We'll check out the ruling and what it could mean if it uh, goes live in other parts of the country. And local news has taken a lot of big hits in recent years, especially when it comes to newspapers in smaller communities. A state lawmaker joins the show to make the case for some public funding for local news, and we'll check out the state of local news as well. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time.